0: Good morning, Bay. This is the third service of the weekend. I have two more to go. I have noticed something about everybody. Undoubtedly, you're all doing the fast, because you're just kind of non-responsive. So maybe going through sugar withdrawals, caffeine withdrawals, Mobile, Foley. I'm sure it's the same with you. I just want you to know, all of you to know, that I'm being very kind this year after the Grace series. My heart's changed. For 16 years, we've done this Daniel fast. And in one of those times during the sermon, as an illustration, I had them bring in some hot yeast rolls that fill the air. We we didn't eat those, but the aroma. Then one one year I did a message and I used a ribeye that had been cooked. People were drooling. I'm not doing that to you this year. I just want to say thank you for fasting. I hope it's going well, and you only have two more weeks. (laughs) Just say it real fast. Uh, So anyway, uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's good, and try to stay awake. Don't nod off. Everybody okay? All right. Uh, Just P.S., after this weekend, two more services in this room for Malbus. Just thought I'd drop that in. Okay, if you have your Bibles, uh, that should have been a yay, because it won't be crowded and all that, yeah. It's okay, you're, you're, you're in a fast, I understand. If you'll turn to Luke 10, just stay in that chapter, that's what I'm going to look at. This Awakening series has started out talking about who are we, Bay Community. Last weekend I talked about the authority that's been given to us, and God has given, gave Adam authority. And prayer is the acknowledgement of that authority. And prayer is the invitation to God to use his power and authority on planet earth through us. So if you missed either one of those messages, you can go back. When you look at the term awakening, there have been several great awakenings in the history of America in the 18th and 19th century through men like Jonathan Edwards and D.L. Moody and Whitfield and those people. Uh, when an awakening comes, <clears throat> it's usually after a time of spiritual passivity or a time where there's such a movement of being so secular in our society. It's not the first time in American history that there has been such passivity and secularism, but it's the worst by far. When an awakening comes, here's what happens. People come under conviction, not condemnation. Holy Spirit never brings condemnation. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, and people come to church, they come back to God or they come to God for the first time. There have been several in America history. Uh, and, and I'm wondering what's going to happen in America if there's not a, another awakening. God loves America. His plan is an awakening in America. And, but I have to say this, before America awakes, the church has to awaken. And that's probably the main reason for this series. So let me do this. How many of you have ever been blindsided by a question? You're sitting there with friends or colleagues or maybe even family and you're talking at lunch or whatever and then someone leans in and they ask you a question and this question kind of puts you on the edge of your seat because you don't have a polished answer yet and, and or you're not prepared and they're trying to catch you off guard and show your weakness so that your answer will be kind of be off the cuff. We we've probably have all been in a similar situation where... The question is about something that happened three or six months ago and it's awkward and it's quiet and you, know, you can hear a pin drop and that type of feeling where you feel like maybe you're being scrutinized, you're being tested. If you've ever experienced that, I want you to know this. This is what Jesus lived through for 33 years on the earth. He would show up at people's homes and there would be political leaders and spiritual leaders and lawyers and people and they're constantly trying to catch him. They're, they were trying to see if he would react and say something off the cuff, so they would have something to pin on him. One night, there was a gathering of a, a lot of people in a home. Luke ten twenty five says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up in this home to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we think about that question and thinking Jesus is going to answer it, that seems so simple for him. Because he could talk about heaven and spending forever with God and what's heaven like and all of that. But that's not what the expert of the law is asking. In the Jewish context, when you heard the phrase eternal life, here's what it meant. It meant, how do I live with God now? How do I stay in step? How do I stay in tune? How do I stay in harmony with almighty God? How do I live with such sincere meaning now? So the expert in the law stands up and basically he's putting Jesus on the stand and everyone in the house now becomes his jury. And, and, and so they're looking at Jesus. Tell us teacher, how will he respond? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus brilliant brilliant jesus answers with a question he does this often in the gospel and guess what it irritates people it irritates you today when you ask a question and someone turns it back around with a question he's trying to not just give some kind of padded answer to the person he's trying to help the person asking the question discover what they already believe to be is it true So, you see, we all have things we need to relearn about God, and then we probably have things we need to unlearn about God, and Jesus is asking this question, and it's going to provoke them, and of course, he's a brilliant strategist, and if someone's trying to pose a question, Jesus is the master at asking the right question, and so when he asks the question, what he's trying to do is force people to show their card. He's trying to find out, why are you asking this question? What's the real reason in the bottom of your heart you're asking this question, what are you trying to achieve? Verse 26, he answers the question to the expert in the law. Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? You're the expert. You, you, you tell me, what, how do you understand this? Now, the law in the Jewish mind was the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. So if you begin to read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, You will see, if you count, 613 commandments. And to the Jewish people, they're not laws and commandments, but they're sacred deeds for people to walk in step and walk in harmony with God. So here's what's so amazing about this time. What happened is the rabbis began to rank the laws like you would rank a college football team. Of course, you're all out of that now, right? come on. (laughs) I mean, I I can say football and everybody's excited, but right now there's not a lot of people excited about it. But anyway, uh, the rabbis rank the laws. For instance, for the most part, the number one law, the number one law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. The word might in Hebrew means muchness, not munchkins, but muchness. What, is, what does that mean? That means with every atom, every ounce of your strength, every fiber in your body, you love God. But the great debate was always what's the second greatest commandment? That was the debate. 50 years before Jesus lived on the earth, there were two rabbis, Halel and Shammai, and they had. Tremendous debates. In fact, the gospel even uh, showcases eight of their debates. In seven of those debates, Jesus agrees with Halel. In one, he sides with Shammai. And these two rabbis were known commodities in the days of Jesus. Halel had a son, a grandson named Camille, Camille, and he was the rabbi of Paul. So Halel, here's what he said Oh, the the second greatest commandment. The first is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and your muchness, and the second one is, is, is to love your neighbor as yourself. But Shammai he was this literalist, and he said, "Oh, the first commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength, and the second one is be holy as God is holy." So there's a difference. There's a debate. So when Jesus is asking the question, he knows all of this, and he knows the expert in the law knows this, so he's wanting to know which side of the debate are you on. So you tell me, sir, verse 27, he answered, well, you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do this, you'll have eternal life. You've answered correctly, do this But the lawyer wasn't satisfied. They really never are. So the the lawyer still wants Jesus to be on the stand. So he leans in and he says in verse 29, he goes, he wants to justify himself. And who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Well, that's a great question. Couldn't have asked a better person. Because in those days, a neighbor was described by a Hebrew word, re'ah, it's simply rei, Re-A, and it means someone close or someone from your same tribe or maybe, big stretch maybe, someone from your own country. But your neighbor definitely was not a pagan or a Gentile or one, as one ancient rabbinical book says, those stupid people from Sheol, which would refer to the Samaritans. So these people said, well, Our neighbor is someone from our tribe. Our neighbor is somebody who looks like us. They dress like us. They act like us. They vote like us. uh, They're they're like us. Anyone else is not worthy of our love, and they're an enemy. Now, if I were in the deep south, I would even add to that that they don't like the same football team that I like. (laughs) But I won't say that. So this man is trying to box Jesus in, and he asks a great question, so who do you say our neighbor is? Now, you have to see this. Jesus is sitting probably on on like uh, pillows or or, or near the floor, around the table, and every eye in the room is looking at him. And he doesn't ask another question. He tells a story, which he does often. And this is a story that we all know. In fact, every time you drive down the road and you see a car stranded and someone's pulled off to help that person, you think of this story. In my opinion, the story of the Good Samaritan has been greatly misinterpreted. For the most part, we say it's acts of random kindness. Or we say, well, it's about a priest who didn't have time for people. He was too busy. So in this message, here's what I want you to do. My goal is to take you into the first century. I want to take you to the ancient Near East. I want to paint a picture for you of how the audience would have heard this story because I believe that it has great implications for 21st century Christ followers. So I ask you to put aside your thoughts about and ideas and perceptions about the good Samaritan and, and act as if you're hearing the story for the first time. So the expert says, well, who's my neighbor? Verse 30, and Jesus said, Starts the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, we, we don't know who this man is. We have no identity, no idea of his identity, his nationality. All we know is he's a man headed from Jerusalem to Jericho. And understand, Jerusalem sits about 2,400 feet above the Mediterranean sea level, and Jericho sits about 850 feet below the Mediterranean sea level. So this journey is about 17 miles long. It's wavy, it's windy, it's curvy. It descends 3,400 feet in about 17 miles. So it's downhill. You got the picture. This man is walking down when he finds himself being robbed by a group of robbers, Scholars will tell you, historic scholars will tell you that this road, I've been on this road many times. I've been on this road and even parts of this road, they have blinders hung 20 and 30 feet up so snipers can't see to shoot somebody traveling down the road. Historians will tell you today, this is one of the most dangerous roads in the ancient Near East, Middle East. It winds and curves. It's in mountains. It's a modern highway today, but you can't see if someone's around the corner. You can't see if someone's sitting on a mountain around the corner. And so what happens is this man, he comes around and these robbers jump and they strip him of his clothes. They beat him to a pup and they abandon him and leave him to die. In those days, in that culture, there were two ways you could recognize people. One, by the color of their clothes, you could tell, oh, they're from Rome. They're from Jerusalem. They're from Galilee are by their accent. It's just like us. If you go north, somebody's going to say, oh, you're from the deep south. And when the people like in Boston and Massachusetts, those people, when they realize they're in Egypt and they come to the deep south of the promised land, when they get down here, we recognize their accent, right? Come on, somebody help me (laughs) preach. We're in the deep south. This is the sweet part of the promised land. But this guy has on no clothes, He's almost dead. He can't talk. So he, he does not know who this person is. Is he a Jew? Is he an enemy? Where, where is he from? Who is he? All he knows, is he's, he's lying there about to die. So Jesus sets up the story and then he drops in three characters. And so in verse 31, he said, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. A priest in that era was part of the upper class. Most priests lived in the city of Jericho. They worked in Jerusalem. They worked two weeks on, two weeks off, and and he's been working and he's been helping people offer sacrifices, atone for their sins. His two weeks up, he's on his horse because he's upper class. He has a horse. He's headed home, and he sees this man, and he decides to keep going. Why? Many of us have been taught that it was about time. He didn't take the time, but it's not about time. It's about how he ranks the laws. It's about how he understands the Torah. For him, it's not about loving your neighbor because he can't tell who this man is. It's to him about being holy because if he gets off the horse and touches the man who's unclean, who's, who's, who's bleeding, who's naked, then he is ceremonially unclean. He would then have to go back up the hill to Jerusalem and go to the temple. He'd have to go in a special area for priests that are unclean and defiled, and he would have to stay in that place for the process to take place while he's in that place. Here's what he's going to hear he's going to hear mocking and shaming what are you doing here you're a priest you shouldn't be here you can't do your job you can't fulfill what you're supposed to do so this priest had a decision to make is this person that i can't identify is he worth the shame i may experience is he worth the time i've got to go back to drew is he worth the mocking if this person is worth going back and i can't see my family is he worth it and the answer was no Two or three years ago in Nova Scotia, a little kid was going into high school for the first time, ninth grader. First day of school, for some reason, he picks out a pink shirt. He gets to this high school, and things are going well, but about middle of the day, the bully, the senior, comes up to him, pushes him on the floor, kicks him repeatedly, and then he bends down and points his finger in his face and says, don't you ever wear pink again and he walks off. Two juniors watch, and they see what's happening. When he walks off, they slide down to the kid, and they don't say, hey, are you okay? Can we help you? They slide down and say, we saw what happened. Will you wear pink again tomorrow? And this kid says, are you kidding? Did you hear what, did you hear what he said? Did you see what he did to me? And they said, listen, we, we understand, but we've got your back. You wear pink tomorrow. What he, he, he had a decision to make, this kid did. He had to make a decision, but see what he didn't know that these two juniors went on social media, Facebook, and, 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 and texting and tweeting, and, and they called their friends and said, wear pink tomorrow. This high school in Nova Scotia had 14 to 1,500 students in it. The next day, over 1,370 students wore pink to school. They're making a declaration in their school. There'll be no more bullying in our school. Nova Scotia caught the wind of this. They declared the first day of every school year is pink day. But I want to think about the two juniors because guess what? They knew the bully. They've already experienced this bully. They knew this was going to make him mad and they didn't want to do that. But guess what they did? They slid down to the kid and here's what they're saying. Let's change the system. Oh, the bully's going to be mad, but let's get the whole school behind us because we can do this. We can change the system. They had probably already experienced shame and mocking just like this kid had. They'd probably been beaten by the bully like this kid. So they had a choice. Is this freshman, is this neighbor worth trying to change the system for? To the priest, no, he didn't. And then Jesus drops in another character in verse 32. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now, a Levite, he works in Jerusalem. He works at the temple two weeks on, two weeks off. He's over security of the temple. He ran the, he ran the grounds. He did risk management. He did some worship on the side of the temple. And after two weeks, he's headed home. But he's not upper class, so he's not on a horse. He's walking downhill. And he's walking on this trail, and, and, and then, then he sees this man lying there naked and almost dead. And the Levite thinks this first. Well, my boss just went through here because the priest is his boss. My boss just went ahead of me, and he comes to the place. He sees the man. He has a choice. Well, how does he rank the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength or love your neighbor, or be holy. But underneath all of that, it wasn't about that. It was about, well, what did my boss do? My boss is the priest, and he passed by. And if I do anything, then what I'm saying about my boss, I I, I can't go against my boss. See, the problem in cultures today is where upper management declare, and everyone else says, yes, yes. The problem with organizations where you can't have dialogue and questions and people engaging with another is you, you have people who don't know how to think for themselves and all they do is they work and try to be promoted because they're just trying to make the boss happy. This Levite did not blow the whistle on his boss, so what does he do? He came to the place, he sees the man, and he says, well, my boss, the priest went around, so I will too. And listen, when you think about it, yes, today there's a modern highway there, when you think about it, he didn't just drop in the outside lane and go around. No, in those days, it was a very narrow road. So it wasn't necessarily like passing by. It was literally like stepping over. So the priest probably stepped over on the horse. This Levi, he probably stepped over with his feet. And, 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 and so he, he, he continues on his way because of the priest. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He drops in another character. And this character takes the oxygen out of the room. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he said a Samaritan, it's like a racist, derogatory term. It had that kind of effect on these people sitting there. And then he attached the word pity to it. And the word pity in the Greek is, is splotna, and it's in the, Greek, it's in the Gospels 11 times. And here's what it means. It means compassion from the bowels. Isn't that interesting? So this message is I want God to awaken the splotna, <laughs> the compassion in your bowels. That's what I'm trying to get you to do, okay? So here's the idea. This man, Samaritan, sees this guy laying here naked and about to die, has compassion on him. And he doesn't do what a lot of us would do. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you're having. Oh, oh that's terrible. I walk off. No, he looks and says, "Oh, that's horrible. What can I do to help? How can I help him?" It was compassion from his bowels. Verse thirty-four. Here's what he did. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, and poured oil on the oil and wine on the wounds. So here's what he did first. He touched the man. He gets his hands dirty. He's probably got some blood on his hands. This guy's naked, dirty, got blood there from the wounds, and he bandaged him, and then he takes the wounds, and he pours oil and wine in the wounds. Well, what in the world is he doing with oil and wine? Well, the Scripture doesn't think... Tell us, but I think he's going uphill, going to the temple to worship, because those were two sacrificial elements that you took to worship. And so he says to God, God, I'm not giving these you today because this man's about to die. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pour these in his wounds. I'm going to ask you to heal his wounds. And that's what he does. It's amazing. So verse 34, he, he, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, and then he put him on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He, th- th- listen, he listen. Here's what that means. I mean, this guy's about to die, so the guy can't sit on a donkey and hold up, stand up. So he probably he's, he's literally probably having to hold his body on the donkey. He probably has a rope, a harness on the donkey, and he's walking. He's leading the donkey and trying to hold the guy on the donkey. You you you, you understand that if in the Middle East, if you walk a donkey, you're identified a servant. The political leaders, the kings, the the, the people of status. Never walk or lead animals. They ride animals. So, this Samaritan to someone who does not know this guy's identity, who he is, where he's from, he just says, oh, I'll take care of you. And he takes him to an inn and sits with him and nurses him so he won't die. Verse 35, the next day, so he he spent the night at the bedside of this guy trying to keep him alive. The next day, He takes two denarii, and he gives them to the innkeeper. He pays the bill, and he says, look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He spent the night, his time. He spent money. He sits with him. He helps him get better. He he prays over him. But here's what I want you to see. This Samaritan is a very brave, courageous man. Here's why. And I think this is why we don't understand the fullness of the parable, because we don't live in a conflict zone. They lived in a conflict zone. We don't live there. This Samaritan lived in a conflict zone. He, he picks up this man. If this man happened to be Jewish, and if he takes him to an innkeeper in a Jewish town, that innkeeper is going to say, oh, that's a Samaritan. You probably did this to the guy, and his life is over. So he's brave and courageous. He stays with him the next morning, gives the innkeeper money, says, take care of him, and I'll return and pay the debt. So watch, catch this. The robbers rob him. Abandon him and leave him to die. The Samaritan comes to pay for him, to he takes care of him and promises I'll return. Who who does that sound like? (laughs) That sounds like Jesus. When you were spiritually lying abandoned, he came and paid for you, he nursed you, gave you an identity, and he's promised he'll return. The good Samaritan is a picture of Christ. Are, Are you breathing? But Jesus is it finished. I love it. I mean, wouldn't that be a great place to leave the story? No, he, he's not finished. He, set, he's at, he, re- asks, he returns a question with a question. He sets up the story. And then watch what he does in verse 36. Back to the expert. So which of these three characters do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Oh, he just turned it around. And notice, when the expert of the law the verses I read earlier, when he asked the question, he made neighbor a noun. Jesus, when he asked the question, he makes neighboring a verb. So the expert in the law, he can only say this. Here's what he says in verse 17 uh, The one who had mercy on him. He, he couldn't even say Samaritan, he couldn't even use the word, he couldn't even speak the word. It was so disgusting disgusting to him and his mindset because he ranked the law and jesus said go and do likewise so listen this isn't a story about just random acts of kindness yes we should be those kind of people where we do those this is a story about love this message is to awaken love this story is about how far does your ideal of neighbor extend is it only the person who lives next door? Is it only the person that looks like you? Is it only the person who votes like you? Is it only the person that acts like you? Or could your neighbor even be your worst enemy? Oh, listen, I'm, I'm so glad you didn't have to pay to come in here because it's, it, it's going it's, it's to get really heavy now. You say, well, it's already heavy. Oh, no, I've had people say, and I volunteered to come hear this. But I promise you, if you listen to me, it's going to make sense to you in just a minute. Could your neighbor be your worst enemy? You know, the person who hurt you, used you, bullied you, mocked you, wronged you, threatened you, cursed you. You know, the person you can't stand, the person you even hate. Here's what Jesus is doing in this story. What he's really doing is he's making a declaration to his followers and saying, My followers won't just love people who look like them and act like them, but my followers will even love their enemies. In other words, welcome to the kingdom of God. You mean God loves my enemies? God loves everybody. What about all the, yeah, he loves everybody. What about that group? He loves everybody. Well, pastor, I don't have any enemies, and I don't, have, I don't have anyone I dislike. Oh, really? Well, if you don't have any enemies, live long enough, and you will. And if you don't have anybody you dislike that you say you don't, you don't have anybody, then you're not telling the truth. Because if I brought up a certain name, and the hair on the neck stands up, there's something about that person you dislike. So you have a choice. And I know many of you have an enemy. Many of you have a person that you dislike. They did you wrong. And so here's what I want to tell you. You have a chance to love. And to me, that's a random act of kindness. That's servolution. Let's go serve. Let's go do a hot meal. Let's go give a bicycle away. And that's wonderful. Don't stop. We can't stop doing that. We'll never stop doing that. But you also have a chance to extend love. What do you mean extend love? To extend love to your enemies. See, it's easy to love people that that like you or nice to you. Jesus said task collectors and pagans to do that. But but understand, we can love our enemies. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. I know you don't want to hear it. I know you're not interested. Because you really like to keep them your enemy. But I'm telling you, I'm going to show you why you have to do this so let me give you this little four step deal, okay number one, name your enemy. the expert in the law couldn't even name and say Samaritan. he couldn't even say it that was his enemy hated him, hates the whole race it, it, so who is your enemy and call the name your enemy, forget the title, my ex, my former boss, that jerk, that punk, that bully no no forget the titles and name. Your enemy and and listen, let me go ahead and hit this one because I've heard this one all my life The church hurt me No, the church didn't hurt you a person in the church hurt you Name the person and forgive the person Jesus said on the sermon Mount, You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy But i'm telling you you need to you need to love your enemy and pray for them Pray for my enemy. Yeah, you need to name them number two You need to pray for them and maybe your prayer starts off like this for them God, kill (laughs) them. Take them out. Annihilate them. He he won't answer that prayer. (laughs) He's not not going there with it. But maybe your prayer starts off like this. God, I can't stand them. God, I dislike them. God, I'm mad at them. You know what they did. And and, and that's a start. But if you keep doing it, if you'll pray for your enemy for 21 days, here's what God do. He'll, He'll soften your heart. He'll soften your heart because even people who hurt you, the enemy will, use, I'm going to show you, he's going, he'll use that to keep you from fulfilling the love that God has. And, and, and let me just make this note just real quick, because the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbors yourself. Uh, and, and the only way you can love your neighbor really is an extension of how well you love yourself. If you hate yourself, it's hard to love other people. But if you've been abused or beaten by someone, I'm not asking you to go back into that relationship again. Don't hear me saying that. That is not what I'm saying. But I think the rest of us, when we have all these little ticky tacky files and people who think differently and they act differently and they're vocal or they get on your nerve or they vote different or they look different, they they speak different, they sound different, the invitation for us is to know them by name and pray for them. Number three, engage in the disruption. What do you mean? It's like peacemaking 101. When there is chaos on your job or there is chaos in your family, Try to be the peacemaker. Ask God to help you, give you wisdom and and influence and insight to to solve this. Don't just let this thing brew under under the covering for years and years and years. Try to get to this and try to take care of it. God will give you the strength and the clarity to engage in this. And don't let it just seep into your family or seep into your job. Engage in the disruption. And number four, seek to understand. Here's why you need to understand. Because sometimes our enemies... The people who have wronged us, they are actually provoking something that's broken on the inside of us. And God's crazy enough about you, he wants to heal every part of you that's broken. So if you have anger problems, or you get real anxious and stressed out a lot of times, or if you live in fear, those are feelings and emotion. And God is saying, hey, listen, you're my son and my daughter, I want to heal you of all of these things. So sometimes we need to understand the people who have wronged us because sometimes people, most of the time, people who bully have been bullied people who abuse have been abused. That's not to justify what they've done, but here's what we need to do. We have to ask God. It's kind of like going to Google Earth and zooming out. God, give us a larger picture of this whole family and what they came through and what they lived through so that I'm not putting all of this hate and frustration toward this one enemy and understand they're a victim of what the enemy has done in a family and it's been going on for years and years and years so that it's easier for you to pray and not take it so, not take it so personal that it's one person who hates your guts are you understanding the words coming out of my mouth some of you are not okay so there's the four steps now here's here's one more i'm gonna add one more to it those four repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and it may take a couple dozen times but repeat it listen we need an awakening to love this is our call not just random acts of kindness, we should do those, but this is about how far does our love and compassion for Christ go? He's inviting us and calling us to love and pray for our enemies, will you do that? See, most of us love to be involved in random acts of kindness, serving people, the food, the bicycles, and all that. We love, And that's great and that's wonderful. But sometimes we do those things and we're extending love to people we don't know when on the inside of us we have, we have enemies and hatred and frustration with people that we do know and we can't even take care of that and what's in our own house. And, and, and here's, here's what we have to see. God wants us to demonstrate ad, uh, random acts of kindness to people all over every, any situation he puts us in. But he, he does not want us to have enemies. He wants us to get rid of the enemies and here's why. Because when you look over our world, you look in our country, there's so much hate and there's so much violence and there's so much murder and there's so much tension and there's so much racism and there's so much this and this and this. How in the world is that ever going to change? The only way it can change is when God, who is love, doesn't have love, he is love, when that love can reside here wholly and completely. And I'm not just about getting a warm fuzzy by going out and helping a poor person or giving a homeless guy five bucks, but I am also going to take it serious enough that that person that wronged me and that person who did me wrong and that ex and that family member and my brother or my sister or whoever, that I am going i going to take that and I'm going to dissolve that issue. Why? So that the fullness of the love of God can awaken in me so that that love can penetrate my community, penetrate my house, penetrate my soul so that the world can see that there is love and everything doesn't have to be about violence and hate. I know it won't be easy. It's not easy to to pray for someone that's an enemy, to engage in the chaos, to understand them. But listen, let me say this, and I'm finished. It isn't easy, but it's the context in which we go deeper with God in our awakening. It's a way to strengthen a new muscle to grow in trust and dependency on God. It's the true way to deepen our relationship with God. And when I use the word deep with God, I use it with red caution, with yellow caution tape, because it's been so abused and so neglected and all that. Here, let, me, let me tell you how you go deeper with God. You go deeper with God when you're willing to love your enemy, and you can't do it in your human self, but you have to depend on the love of almighty God to do the right thing. And when you do that, let me tell you what happens to your life. Your life becomes so intimate with God and you value that intimacy that you will not let another enemy become come between you and that relationship. And you'll realize it's a scheme of the enemy. It's a failure of the flesh and you will guard it and you will walk and grow deeper with God than you've ever done in your life. Okay, I'm done. Feel better? I feel better. Got it off my chest. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hands and turn them up, palms up. You can lay them on your legs or just hold them there. Either way you want to do it. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our church, Foley, Mobile. Father, I pray for the family of Bay Community. that they receive this invitation to love. To love God with all of our muchness. To love our neighbors, those who are kind and gentle, those who are mean and we can't stand them. And God, it's not to be holy and set apart or pass by or step over, but it's to engage God, help us name our enemy, pray blessings over them. As hard as that will be, help us to do that. May we do that and know that the nearness of God will be with us all the way and we will demonstrate compassion that will draw the attention of a world that's hurting to the love of a merciful God. May we do that to bring honor to your name. And if you agree with that prayer, the church said, Amen.